Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. If you are like me and all of my friends, we have so much money, we don't know what to do with it. To help us out, we've brought in David Kudla. He's the CEO and chief investment strategist at Mainstay Capital Management, which manages more than $2 billion in Michigan, just above the thumb of the mitt. Dave, welcome to Bloomberg Radio. I hear you have some interesting thoughts on large cap versus small cap. I do. Uh Good to speak with you, Pim. Yeah, we we have uh, seen a transition in the markets this year. In 2018, we have um, seen a, a increase in the interest in small cap stocks for several reasons. Um, one is primarily we started out the year with uh, low valuations of small cap relative to large cap. We have the tax reform that small caps benefit more versus large caps. And what has been in the news a lot lately are the tariffs that multinational conglomerates will be impaired by, both in sales and their supply chain. Small caps tend to be more domestically oriented and therefore stand to do better. And we've seen that in the uh, improvement in the Russell 2000 here over the past few months and how well small caps have done. Uh, David, uh, uh, Pim Fox here. Um, you were speaking with uh, Bob Ivry, uh, my co-host and colleague uh, during the broadcast. And I, I want to uh, continue on his theme of small caps, but uh, ask you, are they already too expensive? And what area of the small cap space is, is worth looking at? I, we don't think they're too expensive. We know that small caps uh, typically trade to a premium to large cap stocks. And there are just so many fundamental factors that are uh, supporting that underlying story for small caps going forward. Uh, we like techno- the technology sector and actually like technology sector both in large cap and small cap and, and consumer discretionary. You talked to the consumer discretionary. Is that because you think people are going to have more money left over after they pay for higher uh, gasoline prices? <laughs> Good question. Yeah, we've got higher gasoline prices and maybe uh, some more price, higher prices coming on uh, certain goods uh, as, as tariffs impact the, the cost of the end product. But the, it, when we look at, at the areas in consumer discretionary, say, say retailing, and you know what we look for going forward uh, in this market environment as this bull market has, is aging, becoming very long in the tooth now, entering its 10th year. Uh, we look for opportunities where we can find returns or find alpha that is not dependent on the markets just simply going higher or index funds simply going higher. So in retailing, one of the areas is an ETF CLIX, C-L-I-X, which essentially is long e-commerce in short brick-and-mortar stores, uh, a trend that we all see happening with what Amazon is doing versus the uh, local shopping mall or big-box retailer that's no longer there. Uh, when that's, that ETF that is a long, short ETF, when e-commerce wins, it wins when the big, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the big store 
big box stores and shopping malls lose, brick and mortar, it wins. That fund is up about 24% year to date. Dave, I think this uh, bull market is defying all actuarial tables. Um, the uh, interest rates are also a uh, you know front front burner right now. Are there any funds out there that you would recommend that would be uh, advantageous in this uh, in this environment? Well, yeah, we actually have been short uh, bonds. So, uh, and this is uh, this is an ag- aggressive uh, play, but uh, DLBS, which is the IPATH U.S. Treasury Long Bond Bear Treasury exchange-traded notes. Basically, uh, we are betting on, not to be unpatriotic, but uh, betting on a rise in interest rates. That fund's doing pretty well this year, up about 17%. It is a very volatile fund. There are ways you can play this in a more conservative manner, but essentially our theme has been avoid interest rate sensitivity. Avoid interest rate sensitivity in your income investments and in other securities. Um, so that takes us to uh, mortgage-backed securities, which do well in this environment, and floating rate funds, which adjust their yields every 30 to 90 days, floating rate debt instruments, which do well in, in, a, in a more conservative way. But key to that is, is, is avoiding interest rate-sensitive bonds, interest rate-sensitive securities, because we know what cycle the Fed is on, we know where they're headed, and we want to avoid rising. Even though rates, there will be volatility, uh, rates are a little bit lower now than where they were a couple months ago. But the trend from a 10-year yield of 1.33% about two years ago, uh, we're more than double that now. Got to ask you about Tesla. On a week where we learned that they did produce that 5,031 Model 3 sedans, What's your view on Tesla, and how are you implementing your strategy? You know, the interesting thing about what just happened with Tesla, it makes you think about a runner. I look at the traditional automakers as running a marathon. They have a good plan. They have a steady pace to win a long-term race. And I look at Tesla as a sprinter trying to run a marathon. So at the end of each quarter, they get into this sprint mode to meet some arbitrary self-imposed target this last quarter of 5,000 vehicles in a week. They stage everything, get ready to go, build 5,031 cars, everybody claps their hands, now they've got to take a three-day rest. That's no way to win a marathon. And when we look at Tesla and when we see the numbers in a month, we're going to realize how much uh, they compromised quality, how much they increased cost to build to make that build rate. They made five thousand. They made five thousand vehicles in one week. So what? What are the quality of those cars? What is the cost of making those cars? And when they get to a sustainable rate, what is the competition coming in? So I think for investors, at this price, short it. And is that what you're doing? Absolutely. Is it expensive? Is the is the stock is it expensive, expensive to short it? Depends on what your time horizon is. You know, if you look at people want to look at, at at Tesla as a technology company, it is not. It is an automaker now. Yeah, they have some other technologies that don't really add much to the bottom line, and and their solar uh, business unit has its own issues right now with uh, the uh, service center or the uh, centers they've been closing around the country. But if we look at right. their automaking business, they are terrible at it. They are absolutely terrible 
at manufacturing automobiles. And what we're going to see in a month is how that's affect the financials, what the warranty costs are that they're incurring. Elon Musk talked about production hell. We know now he's going to enter David, we got to leave it there. David Kudla, Chief Executive and Chief Investment Strategist, Mainstay Capital. David underscore Kudla at Twitter. China, trade wars, the Chinese currency. Here to tell us more, Bob Sinch, global strategist, Amherst Pierpont Securities. And, of course, joining me here in studio is my co-host and colleague, Bob Ivry. All right, Bob Sinch, at least give us some background on what has been going on with the Chinese yuan versus the U.S. dollar and its role in these trade negotiations. Well, good morning, guys. It's uh, Dollar China's up about 4% in the last three weeks, which... You know, it doesn't sound like a huge amount, but um, it is one of the worst performing um, currencies over that time frame, um, at least amongst the, uh, you know, the 30 major currencies in the world tracked by Bloomberg. And I think most importantly for us is if you look at movements in the the dollar versus the uh, Chinese currency, and you line that up with the movement of the dollar versus major currencies, there's actually been a pretty good correlation going back to uh, at least the beginning of 2016. Now, why has this happened? Because the Chinese have been saying they're targeting a basket of currencies. So when the dollar goes up against the euro and uh, the pound and the yen and the like, if, if, it, if it doesn't go up against the Chinese currency, <clears throat> that's actually an appreciation of the Chinese currency, which is not what they want to do. They want to stabilize it. So we've seen this correlation, and interestingly, in the run-up to the uh, uh, summit with North Korea and and discussions about tariffs, the movement in, in dollar versus the yuan was only about half of what we might have expected, a movement up, given the overall strength of the dollar. So in the early part of this process, in the last couple of months, it actually looked like the Chinese were exhibiting some restraint on the amount of movement up in the dollar versus the yuan. Um, starting June 11, right after the president uh, talked about finding another $200 billion of Chinese products, um, that's the three-week period under which the, the, the dollar has now moved up 4% against the uh, Chinese currency. And you know, I, I was born at night, but not last night. Um, I find that a little coincidental and a little suspicious. Bob, uh, staying on the on the uh, yuan, I am um, been reading about how they're they're seeking to stabilize it, as you said. But if we are in a trade war, and they run out of American products to to uh, impose tariffs on, why wouldn't the Chinese want to continue the devaluation of of their currency? Well, well, I think they would. I mean, clearly they said that, you know, they have many levers that they can they can pull. And I think the two that went unmentioned uh, were the currency um, and ownership of treasuries at a time when the treasury is going to be issuing uh, increasing amounts of debt. You know, I would consider that an extreme option because it hurts them as well. The reason I think they went the currency route is because the impact – of the tariffs uh, is going to impact the you know the impact of the tariffs falls on the corporate sector in China. 
where is there a lot of debt? Where is there kind of Achilles heel? People believe it's a corporate bond market. So profits have been pretty good. Obviously, they get squeezed in certain sectors as a result of the tariffs. So I think from a, from a policy perspective, moving the currency lower actually made sense domestically. Inflation pressures aren't horrible. Um, and, um, uh, and as a result, I think that, that um, you know, it's a, it's, it's a sensible policy move in, in the sense that it will help the corporate sector widen profit margins at a time when that's an important thing for them to be trying to accomplish. Bob Sinch, uh, the Chinese currency, if it continues to demonstrate weakness, would that be a trigger for equity sell-off? And, I mean, you see also stocks selling off in China. Yeah, it has in the past. Um, and, and certainly, you know, the spasms a few years ago associated with fears of a quote-unquote China devaluation uh, were pretty severe. Um, at this juncture, you know, you know what matters anymore you know we've had we've had so many threats of tariffs and counter tariffs and trade barriers and restrictions and you know tearing up treaties that i think the markets have become a little bit more immune um to these announcements and these developments and certainly if you know i would have thought so but given the movement we've had in the last 3 weeks and the lack of of response I'm not sure um, that this alone will trigger much of a, a risk aversion move um, in markets. And, you know, again, I think part of this may be to help uh, Chinese companies and, and potentially help their, um, you know, their, their equity market. I mean, this is a form of monetary easing uh, along with the recent cuts in the reserve requirement ratios in China. Thank you very much for being with us. Bob Cinch, global strategist, Amherst Pierpont Securities. Best wishes for a uh, wonderful July 4th holiday. We appreciate your uh, appearance here on Bloomberg. Hey, everybody. I am not Lisa Abramowitz. I'm Bob Avery, and I'm sitting in for Lisa with Pim Fox. You're listening to Bloomberg Radio. It's really, really hot at Bloomberg World Headquarters today. It's uh, over a gazillion degrees. And Alexa, turn on the air conditioner. Brian Manning is here to talk about the smart home. He's president and co-founder of Centric Digital. And Brian, what are some of the, you were just uh, saying uh, offline here uh, that uh, companies are doing better who that that take a uh, stake in the in the online world. What are what are some of the companies that are the leaders in this? Sure, and and the way we get to that is you know our company Centric Digital measures digital intelligence companies. So we look at both the companies that started only as digital as well as the ones that are entering the space. And you know we have a comprehensive uh, practice that looks at all the best practices within digital and assess which companies are doing it well and not. So smart homes certainly a major theme, but there are many others going on right now as well throughout technology, AI, cloud computing, robotics. These are all new technologies that are going to just change the face of a lot of traditional industries. Tell us about the connected home and the Internet yep. of Things and how you believe that is going to play out. 
Sure. Um, you know, already uh, there's a lot of companies that have automated, you know, controlling your lights, controlling your climate in your home. Uh, your kitchen appliances are now starting to automate uh, some of the tasks that you would otherwise do manually. There's nothing worse than leaving your home and uh, wondering if you left your lights on or wondering if the air conditioner is on or on a hot day like today, not getting not having it on by the time you get home. Uh, so those types of features, uh, traditional appliances and, and things that are in your home are now starting to connect to the Internet, even connect to each other and talk to each other and control uh, control different devices. Well, j just a question. Are, are those kinds of connections, are they going to cost more money? Uh, so far, no. The, the, the appliances and, and so on themselves, they may be priced a little bit differently with those capabilities. Usually it's higher-end uh, appliances that will have Wi-Fi or Internet of Things connection. Um, and there are lots of free services like uh, IFTTT out there that you can connect these devices to actually interoperate with each other. You were saying that the, uh, there's nothing worse than not having the air conditioning on when you come home, but there, to me there is. You know, uh, regular listeners of Bloomberg Radio know what a pessimist I am. What are some of the security issues, and uh, how is the industry addressing them? Sure. W with any new technologies, uh, there's always going to be security concerns and things that maybe the technology uh, builders haven't thought of, and, and ultimately they get to these. I mean, we just saw recently issues with Facebook, uh, with its data uh, situation with Cambridge Analytica. Um, you know, I, I think as things come up, the, the companies figure out the blocks. It's the same thing that happened with email where people were getting spoofed and spam and, you know, companies that provide those services have built more infrastructure in there to help protect consumers. But some of it also is on the consumer themselves to learn how to protect themselves. But maybe you can reassure me about, you know, my worst case scenario is the grid is the electric, the electricity grid is hacked. What, yes. What kinds of safeguards are out there for and, that? And that's bigger than just the devices in your home. That That's a challenge with our infrastructure in the country in general. Um, you know, there are a lot of people in different parts of the country moving off the grid to solar-powered and, and, you know, their own power source. So that's one way that they can protect themselves. Uh, certainly those technologies have the ability to turn themselves off of the Internet if they're self-contained. But over time, um, you know, there's a huge business out there around cybersecurity and all of that for all of these types of companies. Who do you believe is doing the best job right now of integrating all of these technologies and making them available to consumers? Am I going to say Amazon again? Well, Amazon was certainly first to the market, as as they are in a lot of markets. But I have to say, um, you know, we see Google as being a, a fierce, you know, up-and-coming competitor. Their Google Home Mini product, um, as well as the other offshoots of that product, it's very strong. The way it converses with you is much more sophisticated than I think Alexa is. Uh, Apple is also getting into the space again always very late but trying to get into it in a very high-end slick way so the home pod is a very sophisticated speaker which also has voice activation and so on and those are usually the main controlling devices um, but lots of companies are in the space lutron is certainly a leader in the lighting uh, nest uh, which is now bought by google uh, is is a leader it started out just in the um, co2 and and smoke alarm but it's gotten into thermostats it's got, uh, you know, I would say a very high-end competing product with the home security uh, devices that are out there. Everything from locks, window protectors, you know, was your door opened, alarms, and so on.
Well, we already know that Siri can tell me what the World Cup match score is, and we already know that Alexa can play cool jazz. What are some of the other quirky things that are that are new to this market that you could that you could use uh, that maybe you haven't been as publicized as much? You know, I mean, voice control of your home appliances is one of the main ways that I use it. I mean, I I rarely ever touch a switch. I'm always talking to uh, Google and and telling it to turn off the lights, turn on the lights, and so on. Um, you know, so so any of those appliances that we talked about in effect, can be connected to Google. Uh, it's great for reminders. It's great for hearing what your calendar is. It's great for calling up the day's events or, or the weather or, or whatever else. I never set an alarm anymore. I just tell Google what time I need to wake up. And, and some of these devices are getting very intelligent to monitor the way you behave and act. And I could see that AI... Um, artificial intelligence will start to become more and more a part of this where you won't have to tell it what to do. It will know. It'll start to trace your patterns. What so, happens when your Wi-Fi goes down? That That's definitely a challenge. Uh, some devices, including like the door locks, are building in a cellular component as well as a backup. Do you um, have to pay a subscription for that? You You generally would. And so I think people that more and more depend on this are going to likely have a redundant source of Wi-Fi, just like any other company would have multiple lines uh, for Internet. It means you're going to have to have a redundant source of money, too, it seems. Potentially, but the cost savings is there as well. You're saving electricity. Um, you know, you're you're giving yourself back time from lots of little tasks that you may provide. So hopefully, there's an offset in the the benefits that you get from this. What do you think, Bob? Is this is this going to save you time? Because I have a feeling, you know, you're going to look and spend all that time trying to figure out. How do I how do I get the Wi-Fi back? I, oh, I just press think one that, for I, I just think this is the first step towards the robots taking over, Pim. I mean I might be already an extremist. Taken over, yeah, but you know, I still have to unlock my door and put my toast in the toaster, so uh, I have some function in life, you know. I have, you have some something reason to, do. to live. Yeah. We like that. Thanks very much. <laughs> yeah, Thanks, Brian. Brian Thank Manning, you. president, co founder, Centric Digital, and our Toastmaster here. Bob Ivory, <laughs> you're listening to Bloomberg. I'm Pim Fox with Bob Ivory. He is uh, my colleague and co-host for the program, uh, filling in for Lisa Abramowitz, who is on a well-deserved holiday vacation. Well, no vacation, perhaps, for those executives at Comcast looking to better a bid by Disney for 21st Century Fox Entertainment assets. Disney has a more than $71 billion offer on the table. Here to tell us more about these negotiations and the battle for the assets is Gita Ranganathan, our technology and media analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence and you can follow Gita on Twitter at Gita Rangan number one. Gita, tell us about the latest in this battle for the assets. What is Comcast facing? Yes, um, Pim, thank you. So this is really turning into a do-or-die battle for both Comcast and Disney. As it stands right now, Disney has a $38 per share offer on the table that 
um, bested Comcast $35 offer, and it's actually 30. Uh, yeah, it's it's also 35% higher than Disney's own offer, which was about uh, which came in at about $28 six months ago. Um, so they kind of tried to really preempt um, the Comcast bid, but I don't think it's a done deal just yet. Um, we are going to see a lot more action here. Uh, the market believes that Comcast is going to come in with a significantly higher bid, possibly anywhere from about 45 to $50 per share. Um, so that's kind of where it stands right now. Um, there is a deadline, though, because um, Fox stockholders are supposed to vote on this deal um, on July 27th. So we're expecting some action from Comcast uh, before that date. Yeah, I, I think it um, it's good to, to just note that it's not all of Fox. It's Fox Assets, the film and TV studios, the cable networks, pay TV operations, Sky and Star India. Yes. It, uh, Gita, is there any possible future here where they end up carving up the assets and maybe splitting the, the uh, splitting the baby? Yeah, so that's actually a really interesting question. So Bob Iger on um, on the most recent M&A call was asked that very same question. Um, and what he said from Disney's perspective is, no, we are not interested in any kind of a split. Uh, but just kind of looking at the uh, the massive price um, that that these assets are going to be commanding. I mean, it certainly makes sense for Comcast, I think, um, to examine kind of a carve-out of the assets. Um, They really are more focused, if you just look at it from Comcast's perspective, they really are more focused on the international portion of Fox's operations. So really, what Comcast is going after is Sky, um, the satellite operations in the UK and um, some parts of Europe, and also the Star Network in India, which has, uh, you know, millions of subscribers. It's a very, very popular um, TV service there. Um, so that's kind of really what Comcast is, is going after. Not so much the studio, not so much the TV networks. Disney, on the other hand, is really focused on getting content for um, its streaming service, which it hopes to launch next year. And so the studio is extremely important for Disney. And so it kind of makes sense in a way if you know both of them split assets. What about the possibility that Comcast finds a partner? So there were some reports about this. Um, a, a few days ago, there was a, there was a, a report in the journal suggesting that um, Comcast is actually exploring tie-ups with private equity firms, with other strategic partners, so that they can come in and submit um, a knockout bid of possibly $50 or slightly lower, um, you know, something that Disney would find very, very hard to respond to. And in that case, too, um, Comcast might very well be looking to kind of split spin out a few of the assets, maybe um, spin out some of the domestic operations, hand that over to the strategic partner, and then go after possibly Sky and Star. Gita, quickly, uh, my impression is that uh, Murdoch, Rupert Mur- Murdoch, just likes Disney more. Could he just uh, convince the uh, other investors of that? So, yes, you're absolutely right. Um, So all along, um, and this saga has now been going on for about six, seven months, um, all along the Murdochs have really preferred to do a deal uh, with Disney, with Bob Iger. Um, They, uh, you know, their ultimate goal is to become a a long-term shareholder in Disney. Um, And also there's there's the other question of, you know, the efficiency from a tax perspective just because of a stock deal with Disney. With Comcast, it's an all-cash deal, and there's going to be a significant tax burden. 
Um, Fox just a few days ago also highlighted, you know, some regulatory difficulties, which they think will be much more pronounced um, with Comcast. They actually already have regulatory approval for the Disney uh, Disney deal. Um, so it's going to be, I mean, um, the Murdochs, of course, prefer Disney. Um, there's no question of doubt about that. But if you um, are just following other news reports, we've seen multiple Fox investors kind of come in and say um, that they really want um Fox to kind of listen to what Comcast is going to submit. Um, they obviously want the best deal possible, so the highest price possible. Thank you very much for being with us. Uh, Gita Ranganathan, our technology and media analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.